0: Thank you, Governor, as well, for inviting me uh, to speak with you uh, today. Uh, the focus of this gathering, uh, manufacturing in the economies of the American South, is a, a timely one, uh, and it's one that I think is well-deserving of the attention of policymakers, uh, and economic development specialists, obviously, um, and uh, private sector participants. Manufacturing has been one of the few bright spots in what would other, what is otherwise a lackluster uh, economic recovery. And understanding what has driven uh, that performance I think can suggest some promising directions for economic policy at the local and state level going forward. Beyond purely cyclical considerations however, I think the, the evidence is that the longer term evolution of manufacturing industries Uh, has played and will continue to play uh, a vital role in the growth of overall standards of living uh, in our country for for years to come. And So I therefore commend uh, the governors here and uh, the the, uh, growth policy board uh, for their attention to this public uh, policy issue. My remarks this morning, I want to provide you with an overview of the evolution of manufacturing in the south. My theme will be the role of comparative advantage. Indeed, it would sort of be hard to make any progress at all thinking about the geographic distribution of uh, manufacturing or or any other economic activity for that matter uh, without putting comparative advantage really front and center, center stage, so to speak. Viewed through this lens, manufacturing in the south uh, has two central threads. Uh, the migration of low-skilled jobs overseas, and the growing need for higher-skilled workers. The main message for policymakers uh, to think about is to think very carefully about the sources of that comparative advantage and how they might change and evolve over time. In particular, if the comparative advantage of southern and U.S. manufacturing in the global marketplace. Rests increasingly on technical expertise and skills, then a first-order policy issue for the future is how to facilitate people's investment in human capital. This has implications for, among other things, the full spectrum of educational policies from early childhood through secondary education to vocational and higher education. To set the stage for my overview, I want to briefly uh, review current economic conditions. Um, Before I do, I have to remind you of the usual disclaimer that the views I express are my own and (laughs) not necessarily those of any other members of the Federal Open Market Committee. So the economy, uh, the U.S. economy now is is about two years into its recovery from the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. The popular narrative of that is that The popular narrative is that that recession was caused by the abrupt reversal of the boom in home prices and home construction uh, that had occurred in the the previous decade. While the decline in uh, residential construction and related uh, industries uh, was very pronounced. The economic downturn did not become widespread or as severe as it, it ultimately proved to be until late 2008, when financial market turmoil and the attendant policy responses dramatically heightened uncertainty um, among both consumers and fir- firms and brought discretionary spending by businesses and households to a screeching halt. A notable feature of the worsening of the recession in late 2008 was the sharp collapse in worldwide trade in manufactured goods. The recovery that began in the second half of 2009 has been patchy and has yet to produce a sustained period of above-trend growth. While 2010 ended with renewed strength in household spending, that strength abated early this year. Although the factors affecting the first quarter slowdown, including high energy prices, bad weather, natural disasters around the globe, uh, geopolitical turmoil in the Middle East may prove temporary, the inability so far of the expansion to gain more traction Has been frustrating uh, to policymakers and citizens alike. One bright spot since the end of the recession, perhaps surprisingly, has been manufacturing. I say surprisingly because manufacturing was not a particular source of strength in the preceding expansion. The average growth rate of industrial production in the manufacturing sector in this recovery has been over 6% at an annual rate, compared to less than 3% annual rate gains from 2002 through 2007, the the previous expansion. Now employment tends to grow much more slowly than output in manufacturing, reflecting the ongoing gains to worker productivity that results from new capital equipment and improved production processes. Thus manufacturing employment has grown at a 1.5% annual rate in this recovery, but actually declined at a 2% annual rate from 2002 through 2007. A common theme in manufacturing over the last decade, both in the South and the United States as a whole, has been the movement of lower skill production operations overseas to countries with lower real labor costs. This transition has had a particularly strong effect in some of the industries that were traditionally prominent in the landscape of Southern manufacturing you know what these are. Furniture, apparel, and textiles are the leading examples. The beneficiaries of the movement were countries such as China and India that were transitioning from largely rural economies to more modern industrial ones. Their comparative advantage rests on the large workforces that have yet to benefit from the application, the full application, of modern advanced capital goods. The fact that the relevant alternative use of their workers is in relatively low productivity agricultural activities pins down the real wage in those countries at fairly low rates. As these economies move people from agricultural to manufacturing sectors, they demand more sophisticated manufactured capital equipment. Some developed economies, most notably Germany, have long specialized in the export of such technology and other skill-intensive goods. And a portion of the rebound in U.S. manufacturing since the recession appears to be concentrated in the capital goods sector of uh, the manufacturing industry as well. Domestic U.S. demand for capital equipment has also been robust, driven by a wide array of firms that are finding ways to streamline business processes and reduce costs through productivity-enhancing investments. Employment and output trends in U.S. manufacturing over the last decade are consistent with an economy that is increasingly becoming specialized as a supplier of higher-cost, higher-tech goods in the global marketplace. Ten years of declining manufacturing employment, as output continues to rise, uh, indicates a transition to less labor-intensive production techniques. This relatively greater use of capital and technology in production also shows through uh, to the relative demand for different skill sets in the labor force. The, The widening of the wage inequality gap over the last three or four decades in the United States has been linked in part by many observers uh, to the adoption of technology that favors higher-skilled workers. Uh, to, to put this in perspective, and this is an important insight about technology, the, the economics 101 view is that capital and labor are substitutes. But when new technology comes along, it enhances worker productivity. New capital enhances worker productivity. But what we've seen is that it's enhanced the productivity of higher-skilled workers at a more rapid rate than it is enhanced the productivity of lower skilled workers, thus leading to a widening of the wage gap between those with higher skills and those with lower skills. And this shows up, for example, in the college premium, uh, college educated workers earning more than high school educated workers, and shows up in the gap between high school education and, and lack of a high school degree, uh, and those wage gaps. This is an important fact about recent technology trends doesn't have to be that way. There have been episodes in our history in which the opposite was true. It's just a, an artifact of what particular technology is coming along right now. So the adjustments that have been brought about by these trends have been difficult for many firms, for many consumers, and for many communities uh, to absorb. Um, but this transition um, ultimately places us, us in a better position in the years ahead. The last fi- 50 years has seen a widely documented shift of population within the United States to the south. As a region, southern population has more than doubled and its growth rate on average has about, been about 30% faster than the nation as a whole. Not surprisingly, total employment in the region has closely followed suit, uh, also more than doubling and averaging about 35% faster than the nation as a whole over the same time period. Clearly, people are drawn uh, to the region for a variety of reasons, including retirement, thanks to the spread of uh, air conditioning and uh, job opportunities. And, of course, as the the governor mentioned, uh, you know, our peanuts and uh, other uh, amenities of life in the South. The in-migration of jobs, in part, has reflected the South's historic comparative advantage within the United States in low cost labor relative to the manufacturing regions of the northeast and midwest. This advantage resulted in part from the south's later transition from an agrarian to a more industrial economy and in part from the smaller role of organized labor in southern uh, factories. The south's gain in manufacturing jobs over this period thus mirrors in some ways, it's sort of the reverse image of the recent job loss uh, to overseas manufacturers. And that's strikingly illustrated by the life cycle of the textile industry which was lured to the south from New England, which had in turn lured it from uh, England itself uh, early, in earlier decades. Many of the waves of new jobs coming to the south have tended to require more skill in recent decades and they've tended to pay commensurately higher wages. For example, in the last several decades, several auto assembly plants, as the governor referenced, have been built in the south, giving rise to a network of supply firms uh, located in close proximity. Many foreign-based auto manufacturers have built plants in the United States because the costs associated with importing cars uh, from their home country uh, often outweigh the advantages of lower-cost foreign labor uh, overseas. And the South has been able to compete successfully against other regions within the United States for auto assembly plants. Even though those plants pay well below the national average for the industry, they still pay well above the average wage of the old manufacturing jobs that remain in the South. And so they're helping to narrow the gap in per capita income uh, that continues to persist in the South relative to uh, national averages. A similar story is true for other new manufacturing industries, such as aerospace or pharmaceuticals. In many cases, though, it appears as if the attractiveness of locating manufacturing facilities within the U.S. is less about shipping costs and more about the advantages of geographic proximity to the scientific and engineering expe- expertise that is essential to managing and, and improving, tinkering with, uh, and uh, advancing innovative production processes. The common feature, though, in all of these is that employers at these new manufacturing operations are often looking for skills that are a step above the typical former textile or furniture worker. Now, it's true that eventually these new jobs may leave, too, as wages rise in the south, as production processes become more standardized and thus easy to export, and as manufacturers find less expensive locations for their plants, Abroad, much like the historical experience we've had with textiles and apparel industry. But we should view this as a continuous process of simultaneous gains and losses, with opportunities opening up, requiring higher skills, at the same time that lower-skilled jobs are lost abroad. Over time, the average skill of the workforce rises, and incomes increase commensurately. The two key necessities broadly speaking, for continuing this process are the application of more physical capital, including equipment and software, and improvements in human capital, the knowledge, aptitude, and skills of our workers. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this last recession was severe across industries and regions, and the recovery to date has been tepid at best. The South has been no exception to that. Indeed, during the contraction in employment from the end of 2007 through early 2010, total non-farm employment in the South declined by 7%. In manufacturing, uh, which is notoriously more cyclical than most other industries, employment in the South fell by 16.5% over the same period. And moreover, the South's employment declines were actually worse than the nation as a whole in both those two categories. In fact, there's a tendency for states with the highest concentration of manufacturing to also have experienced the deepest declines in total employment during the recession. As is often the case, however, the deeper the decline, the stronger the recovery. And that's been true for virtually every state in the south over this business cycle. Most southern states have been adding jobs more rapidly than the rest of the country, both in manufacturing and overall. This recovery is still young, Relatively speaking, and the story's not over yet, but the data thus far suggests that the secular shift of manufacturing activity to the American South continues. Differences across state and the severity of the recession also have meant differences in the severity of the fiscal strains that state and local governments have experienced. From this point of view, manufacturing might appear to be a double-edged sword. It may mean good jobs, but it may also mean more volatile employment and income. The fact that manufacturing has declined over time as a, in total as a share of employment and as a share of state gross domestic product has meant that its contribution to changes over the business cycle have diminished somewhat. But on the other hand, the composition of manufacturing in the South has shifted towards more cyclically sensitive industries. A broad fact is that consumer spending – Consumption expenditures uh, tend to be significantly more stable than investment expenditures, including investment expenditures consumers make on durable goods such as automobiles. Indeed, virtually all the states of the South that are associated with the expansion of the region's automotive industry, Alabama, the Carolinas, Tennessee and Kentucky, for example, experience significantly more severe declines in both total and manufacturing employment than the nation as a whole. Thus, the shift of production towards uh, automobiles, capital goods, and the like is going to increase the cyclical sensitivity of state and local finances, that's something that policymakers need to keep in mind uh, going forward. As always, one should be alert to the possibility that this recovery may turn out to be qualitatively different from other recoveries. One striking observation that may be relevant to the possibility that growth underperforms in the U.S. for a sustained period is the apparent reluctance of many employers to add workers, even in the face of rising demand. As we uh, at the Richmond Fed uh, talk with manufacturers around the Fifth Federal Reserve District, which, by the way, extends from Maryland down to South Carolina and out to West Virginia, we hear again and again that manufacturers are determined to keep their headcount down as much as possible, uh, whether through increasing productivity or just extending hours and, and working harder. Even where manufacturers are seeing increasing orders, their uncertainty about the strength and sustainability of this recovery, as well as their uncertainty about potential future regulatory and tax initiatives, appears to be holding them back from hiring. So as, as an aside, I just want to comment on globalization and what it means for the South. In my view, the South has been a a net beneficiary of globalization in a major way. Economists are always touting the advantages of free trade, so it might not be surprising to hear me say this. I'll admit, though, and uh, all economists will admit this as well, is that that free trade brings losers as well as winners uh, in the process. When Southern manufacturing was concentrated in low-skilled industries like textiles and apparel, their support for free trade was tempered, limited by the perception that import competition would erode their comparative advantage within the United States. But the new industries of the South like autos, aerospace, and pharmaceuticals are exporting around the world. The South is also a heavy exporter of basic commodities such as coal and agricultural products, and our ports are now jammed with these goods heading to all parts of the globe. Demand for these products has benefited from the rapid growth in emerging markets that I discussed earlier. Certainly global competition has e- eaten into the demand for low-skilled manufactured goods like textiles and furniture, but the benefits of open global trade for higher-skill, higher-wage industries, I believe, remains Quite a positive factor for the American South. Looking beyond this recovery, I think prospects for manufacturing in the South look quite promising. The transition to modern industrial growth in emerging markets is far from complete, so the demand for our more advanced manufactured goods is likely to continue for some time. Opportunities should continue to emerge, even in advanced countries, to reduce costs and improve business processes through new capital outlays. Growth is likely to occur in industries where the value of proximity to U.S. markets outweighs any wage cost disadvantage, such as as we've seen in the auto and auto supply sector. In addition, it makes sense to look for growth in areas where the proximity to a critical mass of scientific and engineering know-how is important. Going forward, manufacturing in the South is likely to be relatively capital intensive and require workers with different skills than those displaced out of low-skilled jobs uh, that are moving overseas. So what can policymakers take away from these perspectives on manufacturing in the South? The paramount importance of human capital is a commonplace observation, but it's one worth repeating nonetheless. Over time, our ability to sustain a comparative advantage in relatively more skill-intensive manufacturing will depend critically on our ability to create and learn new skills. But the wide variety of skills that people bring to bear on production and investment processes suggests that policymakers pay close attention to the precise type of human capital that will add the most value. The advanced research conducted in universities and other research organizations plays an essential role in the process of developing new technologies and applying them. But often substantial further work is required to translate pure science generated in those settings into usable industrial applications. Moreover, innovative manufacturing processes often require new skills in the workers responsible for operating those processes. The presumption often is that greater investment in formal education, higher education in particular, is the best way to enhance human capital. This is certainly true up to a point. Higher education provides the opportunity uh, to students to acquire a range of scientific expertise Ends to build the general skills of of judgment uh, and agility, intellectual agility that are applicable to a wide range of job settings. But it's also the case that more specialized vocational training can build skills that are very valuable in modern manufacturing. The broad emphasis on formal higher education thus can obscure the recognition of the value of more targeted approaches to human capital like to make one f- note one further observation. In planning public sector investments in human capital and in facilitating private sector human investments in human capital, policymakers should strive for a balance across investments that pay off in the short run and those whose benefits accrue over the longer term. For example, early childhood education is an area where research suggests that public investments can yield substantial social returns, but over a a period of a couple of decades rather than a couple of years. The final thought I want to leave you with is that while the South is a place, its future is all about its people. The ability to sustain a vibrant manufacturing sector and to reap the benefits it provides for a thriving economy depends on the investments we can foster in the people of the South. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.